You realize how many people have come to the Lord reading this sermon? This is the sermon, you know, that emptied out Jesus' church at that time, left him with a handful of followers. But so many have come to Christ reading over it. I want to look at verses, basically verses 36 down through 40 in this study. Last time we began with verse 33 and got as far as 35. In this passage we have Jesus, the bread of life, and he presents himself as the giver of true life, which is what we saw last time and what it means not to hunger and thirst anymore. He presents himself in a marvelous way as the receiver of any life, any life that will come. We're going to look at that today. And then he presents himself as the preserver of eternal life. So here this bread of life is the giver, the receiver, and the preserver. And it is a wonderful message from Jesus to every needy heart. Let's read over the text, beginning at verse 33. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now you remember, they are on a one-track thought here of material bread, material realm, material world. These are materialistic people, and they live, many of them, they're so poor, they live from one day to the next just hoping to get a piece of bread. So the tyranny of the urgent, as it were, sort of anchors them on the material plane. The fact that they had received bread from Jesus gave them some hope that at least we can have this need met in our life, but he wants to give them so much more than that. So what he does is he takes this great need in their life for bread and he uses it to take them from the material realm up into the spiritual realm. And the Lord always uses the, the very familiar to take us to the unfamiliar, to lead us up to a higher level and to bless us. And so that's what he does here with this whole idea of bread. And so they said, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. I'll tell you that statement right there is the kind of statement you can get up in the morning by, you can go to bed at night by, and that you could die by at the end of your life. This is the will of the Father who sent me. If you want to know the will of God for your life and your struggles as a person who's already born again, when you have your difficulties, what is God's will for you that of all that have come to Jesus, he would lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. He's going to keep you if you have come to him. And in verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me. He says it again, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. So here we see this thing broaden out all the way into eternity that he wants to give us in coming to the bread of life. So we've talked about the giver of true life. That was last time. How we will never hunger or thirst again once we come to him. I looked at that in detail and I would encourage you to get the tape if you weren't here. Then we see him as the receiver of any life. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Here's an amazing thing. He says, you have actually seen me and yet do not believe. It is amazing to me that men could read the scriptures, hear the scriptures preached, that they could see God in the flesh, putting his glory on display, casting out demons over here, blazing a trail through Palestine that was unparalleled, healing everyone that came to him. 
setting the captives free, giving them new life, providing bread for them. All these miracles, turning the water into wine. To see Him and to actually encounter Him in a daily way like this and to still not believe, doesn't it make you wonder? What are the limits that a human heart will go to of exposure to Christ and still reject Him? Many of the people in the crowd read the scriptures, went to the synagogue and worshipped regularly, followed Jesus around at great cost and aggressively. And he says, I say to you that you have seen me and do not believe. You see, he is the receiver of any life that will come to him. He says, the one who comes, I will by no means cast out. But one thing you must understand, he cannot receive you if you will not come. If you will not come, he cannot receive you. Now, you might ask the question, well, why would someone refuse to come to Jesus Christ? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One, and it's a very common one, is that a lot of people make their judgment on Jesus based on insufficient data, insufficient information. How many people are out there that succumb to the strong human tendency to do this? I mean, it's a tendency in every human heart, I think, to jump to conclusions and judge when you don't have all the facts yet. Isn't that true? And how often people do that with Jesus Christ. They form their opinions about Him, often from someone else's opinion that doesn't know Him either. And so they have their discussions together. Then you come along and witness to them, and you invite them, and you say, any that will come, He will, he will receive you. And they say, no, I don't want to come. You say, well, why? And they start listing off these weird things about Jesus. Well, first of all, you can't trust the Bible. Whoa, are you a Bible scholar? Have you studied it for years? No, but a friend told me that it's been translated so many times that it's lost all meaning. So you can't trust the Bible. And here you begin to deal with all these opinions that are just based on all kinds of insufficient data. And they're very weak excuses. With people like that, you know what I often do? I just start right in with the Bible. Oh, is that right? Well, do you know that what even the Bible says? Well, no, not really. The Bible says, start telling them quotes about Jesus. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Well, I don't believe the Bible. It's been translated so many times. Yeah, the Bible says. I just bypass all that. You know why? The word of the Lord doesn't return void. And they think they know so much about the Bible. I just let them get exposed to the power of it. And by the end of the conversation, I see the conviction that's come over their heart. And they've been mocking it and seeing it as worthless, but now they're feeling convicted about their sin just by a few quotations from the Scripture. Do you know that Billy Graham was asked one time, what do you owe the success of your preaching to? And he said, well, he said, really all I've ever done over the years is, is find myself a simple outline and then put some very simple and very key Scriptures in between the outline and maybe share a few stories. And I have found that God has blessed His Word and it's the power of the Scriptures that have penetrated men's hearts and women's hearts and brought them to Christ. And he said, and that's what I still do. And he's done that to this day. And it was from Billy Graham that I first got that whole idea. The Bible says, and you can know Him. You get up and come. And it was, it was really from Billy. Graham, that I got that idea of the Bible says, the Bible says, so I thought, I'm going to try that. I remember trying it on a man that I worked with, and he was doing all these things, well, this, that, and I've heard from others, and all these opinions, and therefore I reject Christ, and I'd say, well, do you know the Bible says? The Bible says, the Bible says, we do this after work, and, and then I left that job and went to another place, and months later, I got this phone call, and the guy on the other end, it was this guy that had mocked and rejected Christ for so long, and he says, I want you to know... I've come to the Lord. He said, long after you left working with us at that company, do you know what happened to me? I said, no. He said, I had this echo in my head. And it was your voice. And it was this phrase, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And he came to Christ and his wife and many in his family. See, people form their opinions from insufficient data, often opinions about the Bible and what it says, and they, they reject Christ. 
Don't let that stop you from witnessing and you should not let that stop you from coming to him today. Another reason people reject Jesus is the bad witness of what I call a CC. Now, I didn't say a sissy. I said a CC, although I don't know which is worse. Do you know what a CC is? It's just a little short way I have of describing a carnal Christian, a CC. So you can adapt that into your vocabulary. If someone is a carnal Christian, they're a CC. It's kind of like a sissy, only different. So often it's the bad witness of a CC, where someone is watching the life of a Christian and they claim to follow Christ. My life has been changed by Him and yet they're no different and often they're even worse than people in the world around them. And that stumbles people. It, it causes them to turn away and not want Jesus. If you have been kept back because somebody's life has alienated you, realize this. All men are hypocrites in the end in some way. All men betray. All men disappoint. All men have a selfish streak a mile long down their back and through their heart. But Jesus never is a hypocrite. Jesus never betrays. Jesus never lets you down. And He never changes. Make your judgments on Jesus Christ. You come and put Him to the test and He will never let you down. And I feel sorry for those people that have been married to a spouse that claims to be a Christian. And that person just lives everything contrary to the Christian life. And then has the nerve to go out and live in sin, unrepentant, and say, don't judge me. And you call yourself a Christian. And they just point the finger back while they live everything that brings reproach to Christ. And it can happen, you know, to any one of us. Any one of us could be used by the devil to keep others from Christ. Think of David. God called him a man after his own heart. And David committed the sin with Bathsheba, adultery, sent Uriah, her husband, who was one of his closest friends. Sounds like a modern-day scenario. One of his closest friends, Uriah the Hittite, he was one of his greatest warriors, one of his closest friends sent him to his death in the battle. And he went along for almost a year and didn't repent. And finally, Nathan the prophet, who basically had watched David grow up from a little tiny baby, very close to David, he came to him in Second Samuel twelve thirteen, and it says, So David said to Nathan, after Nathan showed him his sin, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And he finally came to grips with it. After nearly a year, Nathan said to David, here's the mercy of God, he said, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. You know what that means? According to the Mosaic law, you've committed adultery. You should have been stoned to death. You should have had the death penalty for your sin. God is going to be merciful to you. You're not going to die. But then he added this. But know this. By this deed, Nathan said to him, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So there are consequences, David, to your sin. One of the big consequences is you have caused people to blaspheme God. You've caused people to turn away from God when you and this great kingdom you lead are to be the light of the world. Often people are kept back from Jesus Christ and reject Him because of watching the bad witness of someone that lives near to them. It's a very critical thing that we seek to live uprightly for the sake of those that don't know Him. And another reason people refuse Christ is that they simply want to. They simply want to. You see, some, and you may be there today, some refuse Jesus Christ in the face of a full detailed revelation. They understand it all, they see it all, they have effectively a face-to-face -face sort of an understanding, and yet they reject Him. Don't let yourself be one of those individuals. You will pay the price forever. Turn in your Bible, let me show you something in Luke 23, 32. Luke 23, 32. 
Here is Luke's account of the crucifixion. And there are two criminals crucified with Jesus. It says in Luke 23, 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, notice, one on his right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they divided his garments and cast lots. So they're having um, a gambling game at the foot of the cross, right down below Jesus, gambling for his garment and throwing the dice, as it were. And Jesus is praying for the forgiveness of his crucifiers. And so these guys on either side are watching all this. They've heard, no doubt, his preaching, at least heard of it, at least seen and learned so much. But now they're face to face with him. And he's confirming everything they would have ever heard about him as he's even dying. And as he prays for the forgiveness of his crucifiers, in verse 35 it said, The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with him sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. So the criminals, they're watching all this. Two men face to face with Jesus Christ. Two men face to face with death and eternity. Two men facing their last moments on this earth and face to face with the Savior of the world. And they're watching him, how he behaves in the midst of all this. And one of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He's just mocking him with everyone else. Here's the response of one, face to face with Jesus, face to face with death. And then here's the response of the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, you're going to die any minute? And you're acting like this? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Out of the abundance of the heart comes his understanding of Jesus. And then he turns and articulates it all. He says, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you will believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the Bible says God will save you. He turns in the midst of this mocking, Christ-rejecting crowd, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two men face to face with Jesus. Same facts, same revelation. One rejects and goes to his death into eternity. The other accepts him and goes into paradise with Jesus and on into the kingdom of heaven. Which one are you? Are you the one that has received him in the midst of it all? And do you know that life with him today? Or are you the one who has seen it all, heard it all preached, and yet you reject him still? You see, people reject Jesus for all kinds of reasons. But the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's been called the hound of heaven. He sends out his spirit through all the earth to call men to repentance so that in the end you're without excuse. God will give you sufficient light to respond and to be forgiven and to be granted the gift of eternal life. Let me ask you, what's keeping you from coming to Jesus? You might be thinking, well, you know, I don't like your Savior. I don't like this idea that He sends men to hell. I just can't deal with that. You say He's a God of love and He died for us, but how could a God of love send men to hell? Listen, nowhere does the Bible say that God sends men to hell. Nowhere. The Bible declares that men send themselves there. If you end up in hell, you will have sent yourself there. God doesn't send men to hell. In Ezekiel 33, 11, 
It says, God speaking says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But this is my desire, that the wicked would turn from their way and live. You see, that's the desire of God. In Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, Jesus was looking over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus was never at fault because a soul went to hell. Never. And no soul confronting Jesus on that last day at what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. No soul is going to stand there at the judgment bar of God and presume to say, I'm going to hell and it's your fault. Nobody is going to have the nerve to do that. Because you see, then all things will be open before him. It'll be evident to the universe that you knew better. And you may have your proud arguments now about a God that you perceive to send men to hell. Only men send themselves. And God stands in the path of every man all the way through the lifetime of that individual, man or woman, saying, won't you stop? Won't you come to me? Won't you come unto me? And Jesus says, if any will come, I will in no wise cast you out. You see, in the end, you may not receive him because of all these reasons, but in the end, you are the one that God's going to hold accountable. How much better to not wait to the end, but to come to him today. And if you will come knowing this, he will receive you. He will not cast you out. He cannot receive any of those who won't come. But on the other hand, he will not refuse any of those who do come. Look at verse 37 of John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This is an amazing statement. You have in this statement the sovereignty of God, God's elective purposes, and you have in this statement, in the second half, the responsibility of man. Both are here. The first part of the verse shows the security of God's plan of redemption. Salvation is all of God. The success of it rests in His hands, not man's. The other end of the statement puts the responsibility in your court, the ball in your court, the responsibility on your heart to come. And knowing that if you will, He has told you, if you will come, He will not turn you away. And so He will not refuse any that will come. But notice this, the Father, Jesus says, the Father, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. As He is standing there in front of this crowd, he knows what they're going to do when he's done with his message. He knows they're going to turn and they're all going to leave except a handful. They're effectively going to reject him. And yet he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He has just said, you've seen me. And you're not believing. They said, show us a sign and we'll believe. He had just fed them bread, miracle bread. He had shown them plenty of signs. One more thing wasn't going to convince them. You see, it isn't signs and wonders that cause people to believe in Christ. It is opening your heart to His message and having the willingness to turn from your sin that is the issue. Signs and wonders are not the issue. They had seen it all and didn't believe. The person that says, if Jesus would just stand in front of me right now, I'd believe. Oh, would you? They stood in front of Him and they saw a lot. It was more than a momentary glimpse and they didn't believe. But here he says, know this to these people that are going to reject him and are in their hearts. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, you can walk away as a crowd. And those of you in the crowd who leave because you follow the crowd, know this. That you may leave, but others will come. You may miss out, but others won't. You may be damned, but others will have eternal life. 
And I'm telling you right now before you leave, if any of you in this crowd will come, I will receive you. He's effectively saying, don't go with them, you that follow the crowd. And I say to you tonight, don't go with them, you that follow the crowd. Have the courage to stand up in the midst of a spineless generation and deal with your own eternity. Because in the end, that's what every person is going to wish they did. But he says to them, all that the Father has given me will come. In other words, you can leave me as a crowd, but you're not going to overthrow the success of my mission. You may think I'd be discouraged because you all leave me, but know this. My confidence in my mission is in this, that God the Father already knows who would reject me. And God the Father already has worked out in detail the salvation of everyone that will come. And I have come to give my message out to all that will listen and to take back with me any that will come with me. And the ones that are going to come with me are all that the Father gives to me. You see, this is not my mission, it's His. He planned this in eternity past. He knew in eternity past every situation, every life, every bit of rejection and every bit of openness. He's sewn the whole thing up. And so the mission cannot fail because the success of the mission is locked up in the eternal decrees of God in eternity past. This is the doctrine of election. And I'm not going to go into it in depth. We went into it in seven messages on Sunday mornings because... The Bible's full of verses like this. You can come to them and wonder and wonder and wonder. So we took seven messages in a discussion of election. You can get the tapes to deal with all these issues. But I think it is tremendous that as you look here and you see, man, wouldn't Jesus be discouraged? I mean, he's been preaching and preaching and dealing with multitudes of people. And these people, these, quote, disciples, they've all been following along, many of them, for quite a while. And now he comes and he calls them to commitment and they all leave. Wouldn't you think Jesus would be discouraged? Well, he would have been if he was on maybe his own mission. But he was on the Father's mission. The Father already had appointed those who would enter into eternal life and he came to get them. And he knew his mission couldn't fail. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. He's saying this is effectively what Jesus is imparting to them. Your unbelief does not move me or surprise me. I foresaw it. I have been aware of it. Nevertheless, your unbelief will not prevent God's purposes taking effect. Some will believe, though you remain unbelieving. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me in due time. Believe and be saved in spite of your unbelief. All my sheep shall sooner or later come to me by faith and be gathered within my fold. I see your unbelief with sorrow, but not with anxiety or surprise. I am prepared for it. I know that you cannot alter God's purposes, and in accordance with those purposes, a people will come to me, though you do not. Luther made some comments on this, and he said, Martin Luther said, that he supposes Jesus to be saying, this sermon shall not on your account be of none effect. You can reject it. And it will not remain without fruit. If you will not, another will. If you do not believe, yet another does. Know this. While you reject, another accepts. While you set your doom, another sets their glory. And God puts the responsibility in your lap, and yet He takes the responsibility for the success of the whole plan of redemption, and I'm so glad that he did. What if God had planned to save men, and then, with this great plan, I'll send my son to the earth. But once he steps on the earth, the plan is in the hands of human beings, and they, hopefully it'll work out well, and hopefully a lot will come. But we'll just have to see how it all turns out. If he had done that, I venture to say, no one would have come because of the depravity of man. And yet, God in his love worked it out so that as many as could be saved will be saved. And so the doctrine of election is all about the great love of God, not about God being partial or exclusive, but God taking matters into his own hands with a rebellious, Christ-rejecting human race 
so that as many as could possibly be saved would be saved. And so Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come. It's interesting to notice this word all. You see it at the beginning of verse 37? All. It's something in the Greek that is so comprehensive, you really can't even bring it across into the English. He's effectively saying the whole thing. The whole thing that God has planned to give me, I will get and take it safely into eternity. What that implies to me is this. That in the end, not one will be found missing from his flock that the Father wanted there. In the end. And that as the flock of God goes into eternity, they will receive by way of experience, by way of glory, by way of an ever-unfolding excitement and revelation of God, every bit of what God had planned for them. So when he says, all that the Father, all that the Father gives me will come, I see that as every individual, the entire flock, and a never-ending expanding circle of glory by way of experience in heaven, the whole thing is going to be right in place and everybody's going to get everything that God ever wanted for them. Nothing is going to be lost or left out of the plan for those who will come. Have you come to Him? If so, you have a great future ahead of you. All that the Father gives me will come. Everything, the whole thing. It's amazing how much Jesus focuses on this. In John 17, just turn over there real quick. Let me show you six verses where Jesus is so mindful of the fact that the Father had worked this all out ahead of time. John 17, 2, toward the end, he's praying to the Father and he says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then in verse 6, as he's praying, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Father, this right now is a prayer specifically for those that I came to take back with me to heaven and that will come. Verse 11. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. I love that. I'll tell you why. Nothing is more sure in the mind of Jesus Christ than the success of his rescue mission. Nothing is more sure. When you see him on his face, in the dirt, bleeding through his pores, agonizing in prayer, not my will, but your will be done, the night before the cross, the confidence that took him through, Hebrews tells us, is this, the joy set before him. And the joy set before him was you, and you, and you, and you, and me, those of us that have come, those that the Father had set his seal upon, the confidence that the mission would not, could not fail, sent him to the cross in strength, took him through the agony in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done all the way to the end. And what is your will? That of all that you have chosen, they would come to me and not one of them would be lost. Therefore, Father, I'm going to go to the cross and gladly give up my life and suffer for them. And I can't wait for the joy we will experience in eternity forever together. And so everything, the whole thing will be given to him. He knew the success of his mission. And I want to say this to you. This, this should be the greatest source of comfort to you as a Christian worker. We see so much indifference, so much rejection. Yet, if we can see the whole plan the way Jesus sees it here, we will not be discouraged. I stand up here every week, a couple times a week, Thursdays, three times Sunday morning in a row. Generally, I preach somewhere else during the week. And I see thousands of faces all the time. And I see those that just are on fire for God on the edge of their seats. Sometimes thrilling at just the reading of the Scriptures. And then I see those faces that are so dead. I call them the lightless, sightless eyes of the Christ rejectors. 
In my mind, I call them the lightless, sightless eyes of the damned because it's a horrifying thing to me. It's nothing I take lightly. People don't like to hear the word damned today. It's in the old King James Bible and kind of eliminated from newer Bibles. It's just a little too intense. I don't think it's intense enough for eternity to be separated from God with no way back. So as I look out and I see people just indifferent to the gospel, indifferent, I could be so discouraged, and I would have quit a long time ago, if I didn't understand that salvation is all of God, that I'm called to sow the seed, that the sower went forth to sow, and when the seed hit good ground, it burst forth into life, that the effectiveness wasn't in the sower's style. He didn't go to the local style school for sowers, where they give you a designer sower outfit, you know, and a designer type bag, designer gloves, designer hat, designer glasses for sunny days of sewing into the sun, you know. Designer style to sew against the wind. No, the success was in the power of the seed, not in the wrist of the sower or the style. And I take great comfort in realizing what Jesus understood here, that it's all worked out by the Father and the success of this whole thing is in His hands. He's the only one that can save people. I cannot, you cannot encounter the kind of rejection Jesus encountered where in this day, in this sermon, he lost his whole church except a little handful of loyals. Don't be discouraged. Understand this is normal and it doesn't affect God's eternal decrees and the success of his plan one bit. And those sheep that know his voice will come. And in the end, if I'm just faithful to what he has called me to do, he will be faithful to what he has promised to do. And that is never to reject one that will come. And so you go about your business and you rejoice. People sleep, I rejoice. People walk out in the middle of sermons, I rejoice. People mock me when I share with them outside the walls of this building, I rejoice. People bow their heads and come to Christ, I rejoice. And I know that God is doing His work. So let this text be a comfort to those of you that are doing all you can to lead people to Christ and expand His kingdom because the Father gives those who come. And then to know that the Son receives all who comes. Let's focus on that for a minute. Look at verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. What does it mean to come to Him? It means to place your faith in Him. It means to believe that He is who He said He is that he will do what he said he will do if you will come to him. It's effectively that. It's believing what you know to be revealed about him from the word of God. It's to have real faith that evidences itself in your life with a love and a devotion to Jesus. You see, I think real faith coming to him can often be seen, just to give you a classic example, the difference can often be seen between the difference between C and E Christians and T and P Christians. Would you like an interpretation? <laughs> C and E Christians, you know what they are? Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> I generally look at those as not Christians at all. I look at those people who are only bothered significantly by their guilt enough to do something about it only twice a year. C and E Christians. Then there are those that are T and P Christians. You know what that is? Tried and proven. The kind of people who read their Bible and because they have a personal relationship with God, they take a promise of the Lord and they bring it to Him in prayer and then they wait on the Lord, see what happens... And they find that he's always true to his promises and they come back and they write in the margin, T and P, tried and proven. It's so glorious when you find someone's Bible all marked up like that, that over the course of the years, they have tried and proven God and found him to be absolutely faithful. Have you come to Christ? Do you have real faith? Are you a C and E Christian? Christmas and Easter only? You say, no, man, I come at least once a month. Well, then you're a suspect as well. You see, 
If you've really come to Him and connected by faith, you can't get enough of Him. You can't get enough of Him. And when you drift and you become a once a month only or whatever, you don't like it. You hate it. You can't stand it. And when someone comes along and says, Where you been? Why haven't you been coming? Say, I, I don't want to tell you where I've been, but I know it's time to come back. And you want to get right as soon as you can. And you found God to be true because your faith has been linked with Him. You might be saying, you know, I'd like to come. I, w- I would like to place my faith in Christ. But, you know, I just don't think I can. It's, these things hold me back. Let me ask you this. Can you just simply let go and fall into the arms of Jesus then and let him catch you? If this building suddenly caught fire and somehow we were all working on the roof when it caught fire, that would never happen because hardly anybody shows up on work day. But suppose, let's just suppose a miracle happened. Show us a sign, Lord. Let everyone show up on work day. Suppose you were all working on the roof and it caught fire. And there was no way out except there are the firemen down below there and they've stretched out their net and you have to jump. And if you don't jump, you'll be burned alive. Would you stand there on the side of the building up on the roof and say, I just don't think I can do it. Now your shirt sleeves on fire, your hair is burning. I just don't, I can't. No, you would just realize how desperate your situation is and you would just jump and fall into the net and trust them to catch you, wouldn't you? Well, that's what you need to do with Jesus. You need to simply let go and fall into the waiting arms of Jesus. In other words, this is all God asks, that you merely let go of and release your hold on whatever it is that keeps you back from Him. Whether it's your desire to run your own life, whether it's your great high opinion of your own life that you think you're such a good person and you don't need a crutch in life like all those pathetic people that need Jesus or whether or not it's your opinion of yourself that's so low that you think he wouldn't accept you if he came listen if you will come he will receive you if you will just let go and fall into his arms he will catch you what does it mean to come to him it means to believe that he will catch you if you place your life in his hands That's what it means to come in faith. Who can come to him? He says, the one who comes I will by no means cast out. Well, then who is that? Anyone who will. You see, Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is so good. It is so good to contemplate this. What is your sin today? You say, nobody knows it, but it's murder. I was involved with a bad group. I killed a person. I got away with it. No one in my life knows it. But I have been kept back because I felt how could he forgive me when I have taken a life or maybe it's adultery which is so common in our day I hear about it almost every week of some new person in adultery and they're so flippant about it maybe it's the sin of adultery listen he said he came to call the sinners to repentance not the righteous or maybe you're a thief whatever Maybe you're somebody who grew up in a Christian home and what you are is a perpetual, quote, backslider. You walk the aisle, you pray to prayer in Sunday school as a kid, but you never walked it with him a day in your life. And now you find your way back into the building and here you are with God's people and you don't know him. And you feel so guilty because you knew so much and you wasted so much time. You can come too. Any one of you, any one of you can come. Who can come? Anyone that will. That's who. And he won't reject you. And then how may you come to him? How? Basically as you are. You see, this this preaching of Jesus places no restriction. He says, the one who comes. He makes it so personal, doesn't he? The one who comes. I will by no means cast out. So how do you come? You know, some come running. They hear the gospel preach and they are ready to go. And they just, boom, they respond. It's like if you've ever picked fruit. I've picked a lot of fruit in my orchard days, my days of horticulture. If you've ever picked fruit and you go out there and you've got your big bucket and there's a big wooden bin over here and they point you to these endless trees down this endless row and you begin to go about picking the fruit. Occasionally you come to one where literally you've got your technique down. Literally you touch it and it falls into your hand. You just touch it. Those are usually the ones you eat because you know they're so ripe. 
Some are like that. You just touch them with the gospel. They burst into tears. I knew this is what I needed all along. And they surrender to Christ. And they come into this full-blown experience. They're telling everybody. They hit the ground, the straight and narrow running. Some come running. They're just ready. Boom. On the other hand, some come limping, don't they? Some come limping. They come with poor, halting steps. They want to believe. They think they believe a bit as much as they can and then they're not too sure and then then they're not so sure they even want to come and yet they know it's the right way listen it makes no difference if you come to him limping halting the important thing is that you come he wants you as you are he came to call sinners and one of the problems of being a sinner is all this kind of uncertainty but you come to him let him take care of that some come running limping and some come resisting you know usually it's the super intellect ones The ones who have life all figured out. Oh, I don't need that. I have goals for my life. I have a plan. I'm intelligent. Do you know my IQ? Yes, everybody on the block knows it and all around the city. (laughs) You run your own ads, print your own articles, you know, by a faithful correspondent, that kind of thing. Listen, some resist because of their great intellect. I think of Paul the Apostle, people like the early church father Augustine, C.S. Lewis, men with a massive intellect. Many of them resisted. I think of Charles Spurgeon. He knew so much, but something held him back. He read, you look at the junk Christian kids read today. It's just garbage, so much of it. The stuffed burrito from Mars who found Christ type thing. I mean, french fries for the fat man who, you know, is beaten by a taco and finds Christ in the end of the story. It's just insane stuff. (laughs) You know the Puritan paperback books we have in our bookstore? Spurgeon at five was reading that stuff. At five years old. Leisure reading up in the attic at his grandfather's house. At 13 he could dialogue theology with the best of the great theologians of his day. And yet, something held him back. Finally, at 15, in church, a little Methodist preacher gets up, snowy day. The uh, preacher wasn't able to come because of the snowstorm, so there's nobody there hardly. And this little guy gets up who's a layman, trembles, and he takes the text, look unto Jesus and be saved. And he just starts shouting, look, 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 just look. And then he looks over at Spurgeon and he goes, you. There's hardly anyone there, five people. You, you look so miserable this morning. You, young man. It's like, single him out, why don't you? You, young man, why don't you look? And Spurgeon said, then I knew in my heart that's what I needed. I needed to look. And I looked as if I would melt my eyes away. And that morning, with that feeble message, I found Jesus Christ. But you see, he had been resisting. Are you resisting? Will you come limping? Whatever the situation, if you will come, he will not turn you away. And when can you come? He places no hindrance on that. When? At any stage of life. You say, I feel so bad. I blew my whole life. Now here I am. I'm older. And I wonder if he'll take me now. Yes, he will. Any stage of life. You know, not long ago when Mickey Mantle died, I think everybody here that knows anything about baseball knows the name Mickey Mantle great hall of fame of baseball. When he died, his old teammate Bobby Richardson, who was by then a lay preacher, came to him in the hospital and and shared Christ with him. A few days before his death at age 63, Mickey Mantle surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. Bobby Richardson told his friends that at the funeral, he said that his longtime buddy was now in God's hall of fame. And his faith in Jesus in the last hours of his life had put him there. You can come at any time. You can come when you're young. You can come when you're old. I would just say the most important thing is to realize today is the time to come. Don't put it off another minute. Come and begin to experience the life he has for you now. And know this. He will keep his end of the bargain. And he will not cast you out. He's the giver of true life. He's the receiver of any life. And the third thing, and the last, I just want to wrap up with it, is he's the preserver of eternal life. He says here in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, John 6, 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will? This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. When I came to Christ, I came feeble. I came limping. 
I came uncertain because I could no longer place any confidence in my own life. And I said, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. What I have a hard time dealing with is if I just surrender now and fall into your arms, can I stay there? And I remember telling the Lord, I said, I have to trust this, that if you are calling me, you will keep me there. And so I come, as feeble as I am, trusting that you will keep me for the rest of my life because I know one thing's for sure. I certainly cannot keep myself. I've never kept any resolution. I've never kept any promises. You must keep me. And you know, he received me and he's kept me for 25 years. Oh yes, I've been wayward. I've had my mistakes. I've had my failures. But you see, he's the good shepherd. He will not leave any of his sheep cast down. He will not cast you out. He will make sure, he says here, that nothing is lost and he will raise it up at the last day. He will give you safe passage into heaven. And he says in verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Not only will he keep you here, he will transform you there. And so what happens is where he finds you, he begins to lift you and 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 lift you throughout your life into a better life until finally he lifts you and sends you into eternal life where He permanently changes you and eternally glorifies you. If you will come, He will not reject you and He will make sure you get safely all the way there. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank You for Your goodness, for Your graciousness. Thank You, Father, that salvation is all of God. Thank You, Lord God, that in Your great love You have worked out a way that as many as possible will be in heaven with you. And thank you, Jesus, that you have thrown wide open the door and invited any that will come. You will receive them and give them everything they need, both now in this life and for eternity. For truly you are the bread of life. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.